Hello, hello. Welcome to the Strategy of Finance podcast, where we celebrate the profession and the professionals in the world of finance. These unsung heroes mostly remain away from limelight, but contribute tremendously towards company building. We endeavor to unpack their journeys to understand what moves them, get inspired by their triumphs, learn from their experiences, and most of all, connect with them at a personal level. I'm your host, Rohit Agarwal, and besides this podcast, my full-time duties include building Creo, the unified operating system for corporate spend. We are bringing together the whole journey of spend so you can buy, pay, and manage all your corporate spends from one single platform. Do check us out at www.krayo.io. Without further ado, let's tune in to learn, grow, and inspire. Our guest today is no stranger to the complexities and challenges of the startup world. He is a master of navigating transformative change, especially when it comes to scaling startups and optimizing the intricacies of business. He's an entrepreneur, a strategist, a financial expert, and even a go-to-market leader. Mika Kasumo is the dynamic founder of Abacus and Pencil Consulting, where he has made it his mission to guide Series B and C startups through the intricate mazes of business transformation as a fractional chief performance officer. He's been the cornerstone of various consulting engagements with emerging giants like Mux, Rallyware, Trusted Health, and Sparks Rowing. His seasoned journey has also seen him as a vice president of business operations and strategic finance at the renowned Masterclass, the chief of staff to the CEO of Pentian Platform, and the strategic force behind businesses like Upwork, Pandora, eBay, and Sears Holding Corporation. But Mika isn't all business. He values growth not just in the boardroom, but in life. Whether it's refining financial strategies, mentoring fellow leaders, diving into the nuances of the French language, or exploring the world of fiction, he truly embodies the spirit of continuous learning and growth. Ladies and gentlemen, a master of transformative change and a passionate learner at heart, please extend a warm welcome to Mika. Mika, welcome to the show. Thanks for making the time and glad to have you here. Thanks, Rohit. It's great to be here. Why don't we start uh, with a bit on your background? Let us know, how did you make your foray into this world of finance? I almost fell into it a little bit accidentally. This was a while ago, but when I graduated from college in the middle of a financial crisis, one financial crisis ago, not the most recent one, <laughs> I ended up working in e-commerce at Sears, the, you know, the iconic American brand, just on the cusp of where you know we still thought there was a chance to turn it around. And I realized that I'm really good at bridging product managers, engineering teams, business outcomes, and kind of like customer outcomes. So that led me to seek out a role in, in an analytics-driven role in tech, right? And I ended up doing M&A at eBay, which taught me a ton, right? When you're coming in as a relatively junior analyst on an M&A team, you have a fantastic exposure to thought leaders, right? You have exposure to the C-suite. You have exposure to the M&A committee. You're talking about board-level considerations. I learned so much from that in terms of just how to think as an executive and how to think of an, as an investor. And I think that's something that to this very day continues to permeate the way I operate, the way I advise my clients, the way I really approach the finance function, focusing on finance being a driver for growth as opposed to an accounting-oriented cost center. Very cool. 
Tell us more about what you are doing right now. You are no more in that operational seat as you used to be. You're more of an advisor, a consultant to the CEOs, to other CFOs. So what is Abacus and Pencil? How did you come up with this idea? And what is it really trying to solve? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll give you a little bit of context and kind of like how I got it started because I'm really in my third quarter. So you know, any early feedback you have here goes a long way towards shaping the journey. But I hit a point in my career last year where the natural next step was to be a tech CFO. And I realized that that's not what I was passionate about. What I was really passionate about wasn't necessarily going and running a fantastic finance team at one company. What I was passionate about was helping transform the way the finance function operates within the tech startup world. And that's why I started this, kind of went down this consulting journey, looking for the opportunity to go partner up with visionary founders and CEOs and operators and CFOs and CROs and change the way finance is viewed in the startup ecosystem, change the way we frankly, people like myself, deliver value, right? Because fundamentally, I think that finance can be a competitive advantage. Right? It's not the function you hire for compliance. Yes, compliance is absolutely important. You have to do that, right? And if you don't do that, you get in trouble. And frankly, it's really hard to do a good job in strategic finance if all of your accounting is messed up. So like, there's a lot of good reasons to do this, right? But the way I think the functional function differentiates itself, the way successful companies differentiate themselves is when they use the function of the toolkit to be a bridge between departments, to be the connective tissue between what is the investor narrative, how are we pitching, and where are you actually delivering to your customer, how are you measuring the customer outcomes, right? And there's a ton of things in between, like you have all the different teams whose operating priorities need to stack up, need to align for you to have both a good employee, a customer, and an investor outcome. And I just simply can't think of any other function that can deliver that outside of finance. Makes a ton of sense. When you started out, you said, you know, the next step was for you to be a CFO, whether it's in Valley, US broadly or globally. Certainly, there is a certain kind of uh, validation that comes along with, you know, having been there, done that, right? Why did you think about taking this leap before becoming like getting that title, official title of a CFO at, let's say, a growth firm? And then maybe three, four, five years later, doing Abacus and Pencil versus doing it right away. Yeah, it's certainly a trade-off and I've thought about it. I'll be transparent with you. I thought about doing this three, four years ago for the first time and the time wasn't right. I felt that I didn't necessarily have the right set of skill sets, the right set of, frankly, network, the right way to brand myself. And I wanted to get a little bit more experience. You can always stay and, you know, keep progressing the linear career path and do more and, you know, you'll... The later we make the move, yes, of course, the move is going to be easier. But for me, it was a question of how much longer do I want to wait before I start working on things that really make me tick, right? And the moment when I actually saw that and a fantastic opportunity where effectively, like, you, I knew what my first client was going to be within the first, you know, couple of weeks of going down this journey, that felt like an opportunity I couldn't pass up on. Like, the timing felt right. It, it was never going to be perfect. It's a risk, you know, being entrepreneurial is always a risk, going out on your own is always a risk. My wife is actually kind of like doing her own solopreneur thing as well. And it kind of made sense to go and put all our eggs in one risky basket and say, okay, 2023 is the year when we figure out if we can make this work. Very interesting. Tell us a little more in terms of which stage of startup could benefit the most from what you are doing. If you are going and pitching, are you going seed stage, A, B, C, D? 
and what is the kind of value that you think you are truly delivering to them? Yeah, maybe kind of like take a step back for a second. So here's what I'm focused on, right? I'm focused on helping leverage the finance toolkit as a way to reorient the company's growth drivers, right? That create focus, stack rank decisions, right? And it, it comes out of my own experience, like earlier in my career, where when I owned the revenue forecast, I realized that I actually had a bird's eye view of everything that was driving the company and the risks that are coming around the corner. And while maybe I wasn't close enough to the execution to understand, hey, this is how this deal is going to play out and this customer is going to churn, I could actually zoom out and be a really good partner to the product team to help them understand what kinds of things drive the revenue, especially when you're building features that you're not necessarily selling individually, but you're trying to understand how they affect the broader platform trajectory. So based on that, I think there's kind of like a set of philosophy, there's a mindset that you can bring into a finance function, right? It's uh, and like, frankly, like most of my clients don't do FP&A. Like we don't like do real BVA. Like we just go jump straight through that and say like, let's go figure out how to do strategic finance, right? Like it's not a build. It's not like, hey, need to serve certain kind of tools. Like, yes, you know, as you grow bigger, you do want FP&A because you need to keep kind of budgets and walking, but like you can start doing this in any stage, right? And it starts with abandoning this idea that some CFOs swear by of being Switzerland, right? This idea of like, oh, I'm neutral, which means I sell arms to both parties or whatever, right? Like. If you have an opinion, if the data says one thing, go out and state it. Don't try to be this artificially balanced and playing play both sides. And if you're wrong, admit it that you're wrong. Be open to feedback, of course, right? Because like there's only so much we can learn through data versus customer stories and whatnot. But I think that's the mindset you have to bring into the finance function. And there's definitely a stage when it's too early. I'll tell you that, right? Like when you only have two dozen customers, right? And you know them all by name, like you, you don't need this, right? Like as a founder, you know exactly where you need to go. And frankly, you're at the very early stage of figuring out your product market fit, you're figuring out your vision. But I think the point where you have the initial product market fit and you're trying to understand how that product market fit can evolve towards your vision, in financial or in equity terms, that's usually around the point where Maybe you've already raised or you have a clear path to raising your Series B, right? Up until the point where you know, you've figured out the engine and you just need to go and just like put more wood into the fire, like, and you know, you start focusing on compliance and IPO prep and whatnot. And typically, you know, that's the point where you cross 100 million bucks in ARR. That's the range where I think this mindset is crucial, right? That's the range where this finance as a growth driver mindset can actually act as a way to differentiate yourself against competitors. Very cool. Makes a ton of sense. Let's unpack a little in terms of what are your views on the role of a modern CFO? If you were to create like an ideal profile of a modern CFO, what all should a modern CFO do for its company? CFOs are very different. They typically, you know, come across like three different tracks, right? They come either across an accounting track and they're more compliance and kind of process oriented CFO. They are, they come up through some kind of like operator FP&A role and they're more kind of like deep, deep business partnering CFO, or they come through a banking investor type route and they're more of a deal making, more of an investor externally oriented CFO, right? All three are super, super important. Very few people can do more than one really, really well. Of course, to be a CFO, you need to be able to wear all hats at different points in time. But there's one you you know you feel you're really really strong in. To me, it comes down to like what is the founder looking for? Right? So that that founder CFO partnership 
is crucial for success, especially at the early stages, especially when you're at the Series B, C, D stage, because that's that's the opportunity for the founder to scale their impact, to have somebody who is business oriented, who speaks the investor language, who they can put in front of their board more so than anybody else from their team. And the question is, where does the founder need help? And what kind what kind of help are they looking for? What kind of feedback are they looking for? So the CFO's role is to go and complement the founder skill set. The CFO's role is to respectfully challenge, but also support the vision, right? And there's a delicate balance to play there between saying no to everything and uncovering and front-running risks so that the rest of the company doesn't have to worry about them. Which, is, you know, which functions you own within that, that frankly doesn't matter as much. I mean, I've seen CFOs that own RevOps and strategy and HR and legal and seen CFOs who are really focused on FB&A and accounting and everything else falls outside of their purview. Ultimately, the way CFO is influenced is through the relationships they have with their peers on the executive team and the relationship they have with the founder and, of course, the relationship they have with the board. So whether the functions are allowed to or not shouldn't matter in the grand scheme of things. You mentioned in one of your LinkedIn posts around cognitive dissonance in this uh, discussion around the CFO and founder relationship. Is yeah. that kind of what you really meant, what you explained uh, around the that, whole? That's part of it, yeah. I mean, that, that particular post you're referring to, that was a deep personal learning for me. That's actually relatively recent. It, it just kind of the aha moment came maybe a few months ago uh, around the time that I posted it. The backstory here is that I was trying to understand what's the best way for me to engage with founders and what's the best way for me to push back when I see something and or, you know, support, aid in the back. And for the longest time in my career, I struggled with that. Not every conversation went as well as I hoped it would. And sometimes I didn't understand what I could, could have done better or differently. Uh, and the aha moment for me was when I, when, I, when I realized that founders are wired up differently, right? And being a founder myself of my own, kind of consulting thing, I kind of get that. Then. I felt that like, you, to be a founder, your success, your ability to raise the first seed round, right? And from that point on, onwards, like is predicated on the ability to go and convince other people that everybody else is wrong and you're right. Like, cause you know, statistically 90% plus of startups will fail. So to be able to go and choose to do a startup, you need to be willing to believe in something despite all the data around it, not because of the data around it, right? So as a founder, you need to be concurrently data driven, like searching for your product market fit and have the ability to ignore 90% of the data points out there. And that creates cognitive dissonance, right? This idea that it's really hard for us as humans to hold to contradictory beliefs in our head. That's a huge emotional toll, that's a huge mental toll. So as a CFO, I think we often, or myself at least, uh, contribute to that by just saying, hey, here's a bunch of data that says this is the wrong decision. Great, I'm right. Like, there's no data that says this is the right decision, so like, we shouldn't do this, right? End of argument. No, it's not because founders don't make decisions based on that, right? They incorporate data, but they also tell a story. They also orient themselves against the vision. And um, I have found that, you know, focusing on internal consistency, focusing on stories as opposed to boiling the ocean, figuring out all the data we can get, like looking for what do we need to believe while balancing that against confirmation bias, because that's always a risk, is the art of helping founders find their way to, to their vision. That brings a very interesting point. As I look back, let's say over the last four or five years, where at least across the whole tech startup ecosystem, the true focus was growth at all cost. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, CFOs also attuned their mindset around that growth at all cost kind of a proposition, right? I'm not saying perhaps everyone 
let go of the profitability meter, but certainly the knob was more towards the growth side. Now, what we have seen over the last, call it 12 to 18 months, where you know, the funding has tightened, the you know inflation is rising, interest rates are rising. There are basically elements which are kind of anti-growth. Are you seeing that CFOs are struggling to change that mindset still to be able to much more profitability oriented and have that right balance between growth and profitability? Or you think they've already made that leap and it's kind of like back to, you know, where the mindset had to be? Because the founders are not going to change as in it's a temporary blip in founders mindset, I would imagine that they're saying, fine. You know, I'm going to take a breather. I'm going to understand yeah. that this is like, you know, the times are not kind of what we expected to be. But then, fine, I'm going to go through this six months. I'm going to go through this 12 months, but I'm back again on the growth side. Is CFO mindset agile enough to tweak that through the various cycles that happens now rather too quickly? I don't think so. I think if anything, and the, you know, this is the adverse CFO, this is not the best CFO, the median CFO out there in the market probably thinks, oh, great, I have an opportunity now to go cut all the costs, right? And that's not really what this is. And that's not really what the company needs. That's not, you know, that's exactly how you behave when you're a cost center, not when you're trying to be a growth driver. So in my mind, I think the best CFOs out there, they acknowledge the fact that there was a little bit of a misaligned incentive here in the market. Right, not between them and the founders, but actually between investors and you know economic, you know economic theory, for lack of a better word. Right, I was talking to an economist once. This was in the context of you know hedge funds or whatever, and we talked about like why do we use value at risk as like a five percent cutoff? Right, like why do we talk about like oh what's the worst case scenario that's going to happen five percent of the time? That's not a that's a relatively common worst case scenario. So why do we all plan around that like in this like in the, in the finance hedge fund world? And his response was kind of tongue in cheek. He was like, look. 19 years out of 20, you get paid really well. Once every 20 years, you get a new job. Not a big deal. And there's a little bit of that going on with VC investments, right? Because ultimately, we're still competing against the same LP, you know, hedge fund, 401k, pension fund money. Um, when times are good, everyone's go, go, go. When times are bad, you kind of like have a little bit of a yo-yo effect. And the best CFOs recognize that and treat that as a feature, not as a bug. It means that, you know, you support the growth when you have the wherewithal to invest behind it. And in the back of your mind, you always know that you know, when the next crisis comes, how are we going to use that to your advantage in a way that your competitors can't, right? COVID, let's take COVID, for example, right? Like early 2020, when everything shut down and you know, there were turns right and left. A lot of companies use that as an opportunity to go and upgrade the leadership team, to have the hard conversations and you know, use little bit of the crisis and it's an excuse for why they need an EVP of sales or they need to change like build out their product team at the expense of their engineering team and whatnot. So, but you can't do that in a way that's timely and effective unless you're already thinking about it ahead of time. Uh, this is where there's cognitive distance for CFOs, frankly, right? Like it's not about being agile and reacting to like where the market's going. It's about having this parallel track of here are the things I'd like to do when I have the opportunity to, here are the things I can do today and here's I'm going to create opportunity for myself to act on the on the rest of it in 18 months or in 12 months or whenever the opportunity arises. And the, what we're going through right now is 
I think similar, right? The best CFOs already knew what they where they wanted to trim costs, where they wanted to adjust the risk, and they needed the air cover to be able to do that within in front of their boards, and they did that. the The worst CFOs said, "Great, I can talk about EBITDA all day long and won't stop talking about it." And the reality is that that ship has already sailed. Right? Like if you haven't built sustainable business, simply cutting half the cost doesn't make it sustainable. You're just making a different kind of trade-off. We'll see where this goes. Like we'll see how long this, you know, non-recession lasts, if you will. But my sense is that the wind is already turned and we're orienting ourselves against growth again. We're just asking everybody to go put in 110% to get there. I love the framework around what you can do and what you want to do in the longer term and having a clear sight of that. You mentioned sort of in, in one of your LinkedIn posts that you can't shrink your way to profitability. Yeah, we have talked a little bit about that, but can you unpack that a little more, and especially in that context that startup may not have an opportunity to be able to raise more money for the next 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, and they do need to extend their runway. What else they could perhaps do to not really shrink their workforce, but perhaps try to do some other things that can still give them that uh, time frame or that room to grow into a certain valuation that they are able to raise the next round? Yeah. Well, first I'll say, like, don't let hubris around your valuation number get in the way of building a long-term company. And if you're successful five years from today, no one's going to remember if the round you took today was structured or not structured, or if he was a ladder or down round or not. Like, yes, it'll hurt in the cap table. But ultimately, hopefully, we're all in this because we're trying to go build towards a vision, not because we're trying to go optimize a few points in the cap table. You know, it's great to be rewarded along the way, but that's not the only reason we're all doing this. So, but let's put that aside for a second. Let's, let's talk about shrinking rate profitability and managing your burn. The biggest source of cash that most companies have is revenue. So if at this point in time today, you're doing things that put your revenue at risk, and I'm not talking about churn, I'm talking about your revenue growth, right? You're actually just, you know, you're cutting a dollar in sales to lose out on $3 in future revenue. So why would you do that? That's actually cash negative, right? It looks like you're going to go hit your current quarter. You know, your cash burn divided by EBITDA is going to hit some kind of magical number that you're trying to solve for, but you're putting your biggest source of cash at risk. So that's what I mean that you can't shrink your rate profitability, right? That doesn't mean you should never do terms. You should never cut costs. Like that, that all is important. And there's, there are ways of doing that. They're humane and understanding and can like produce better outcomes for everybody, but you still need to be orient, oriented towards revenue. Right. So a lot of companies today are facing this dilemma of do we cut sales and marketing? Do we cut R&D? They view R&D as their defensible moat. That might be true most of the time, but it's also important to keep yourself honest and say, am I building something that I simply can't sell? And yes, it is. Maybe it is the fault of the sales team that they can't sell it. But at the same time, if you keep building something that you can't sell, you're just wasting money and you need to go and make sure the two are in balance. Right. The taking approaches of we're just going to cut sales and marketing and protect R&D because that's important is myopic. Taking the approach of I'm going to cut R&D because that's not going to bring, like that doesn't bring in in quarter revenue is also myopic. You have to actually, you know, if you're adjusting the balance, you have to adjust the balance across both. And then at the same time, you might find yourself investing into back office operational functions like RevOps, strategic finance, HR or IT even perhaps, because those are the things that increase productivity for the remaining staff you have left. Cool. Makes sense. Uh, let's dig into a little bit into strategic finance. Can you tell us a little about 
what do you mean by strategic finance and talk through maybe the emergence or the evolution of it rather and and where do you see it going and the criticality of that in today's business environment yeah I mean, I mentioned earlier, most of my clients don't do FP&A or BVA in the traditional sense. We skip right, certain strategic finance. And what I mean by that is, you know, finance being oriented towards revenue, using that financial toolkit to understand how to drive your revenue. Costs are obviously part of that equation. You want to be able to understand, like, where's my sales efficiency instead of just, like, what's my pipeline? Because that's what you have sales ops for. But strategic finance is kind of like a relatively new phenomenon. And what I'm actually seeing is that a lot of CFOs say, I want my first non-accounting hire to be strategic finance instead of FP&A. I can go like, you know, I'm a former banker, or like so that this is kind of different CFOs I talked to, like I'm a former banker, I can build the model in my sleep, I'm just gonna build the budget model, we're gonna give it to the board, every quarter I'm gonna update myself, I don't need my team to do that. What I actually need is somebody to go and be a good business partner to the rest of the org, be a good business partner for the CMO, the CRO, the COO, etc. And that's how that, that function is starting to be getting prioritized ahead of other parts of finance. Got it. What all would you put under the bucket of strategic finance? Is it only the planning piece or there is more to it? And is there a certain cadence with which CFO should think about strategic finance? And is there a monthly reporting, a quarterly reporting, an yearly reporting, or an analysis that makes sense under that umbrella? To me, strategic finance is fundamentally business partnering, right? And you have to go meet the rest of the business where it's at. If you have a RevOps team, you partner with your RevOps team. If you don't, you go and build those capabilities within a strategic finance org. In the best cases, this is, of course, if you have the right kinds of trust-based relationships with the rest of your Years and you're forced your founder or CEO, like strategic finance is setting the operating cadence of the company, right? When I've been in finance roles, I've usually driven the OKR setting process for the company, right? And this is where that ability to see what's coming, like the risks that are coming around the corner, the ability to go and own the company revenue forecast, understand where the big block drivers of that on a quarterly annual cadence, where that comes into play, more so than being able to own budgets and figuring out where the costs are going. So strategic finance can mean a lot of different things depending on who you're talking to, but ultimately it's the idea is that like you're filling the void between departments and you're doing that by being a good business partner for each one of them. Great. That brings us to a very interesting LinkedIn post that you made. I'll read it uh, aloud. FP&A emerged because accounting wasn't close to the growth drivers. BizOps emerged because FP&A wasn't close to the operations. RevOps emerged because BizOps wasn't close to the customer. Strategic finance is emerging because RevOps isn't close to financial priorities. Can you put some more light on this and sort of dissect it a little more in terms of FP&A versus BizOps versus RevOps and strategic finance finally? Yeah, of course. I mean, I see it as almost like a little bit of a pendulum swing between different teams, different departments, the idea that Sometimes you need a centralized finance team or an analytics team, then you need to centralize. And ultimately, like it, it's a situation of the grass is greener on the other side. And can I kind of, I think this is again, there's a little bit of a yo-yo effect where investors, founders, like you know, through the, through the community, give each other different advice. So to me, I think it keeps coming back to like there's a gap in the way we built companies, and the gap that gap is mindset, not job descriptions. Right? I've seen. You know, FP&A roles that were effectively doing strategic finance. I've seen BizOps roles that effectively were doing 
RevOps. And I've seen RevOps roles that were glorified Salesforce administrators. So it's not about what you call the role, it's about how you approach the role, whether you approach it with a mindset of driving growth and being a partner for the rest of the org or owning a process, owning compliance. But there's also a little bit of a talent story here too, right? Like the, you know, the, the top talent is always chasing the next sexy title that's going to accelerate their career into the C-suite or VP or whatever that it is that they're solving for, right? And for the longest time, banking was the default path for like, you know, hungry, ambitious professionals coming out of like top colleges. And then that changed. People started going to tech. People started going to straight, straight into hedge funds and private equity. So the talent that you get in investment banking at like a bandwidth year analyst level took a hit. That means the pipeline for FP&A changed. And now it's really, really hard to get a fantastic FP&A analyst. So you need to be able to attract the same talent that is now coming from private equity or different tech job. You need to change the title. You need to change the title to be a little bit more appealing. And I think that's where BizOps came in because there was a way to go and attract former consultants into what effectively was, in my mind, a high-performing FP&A role. But it got the job done and like, you know, we're able to go build some fantastic BizOps talent. And now the talent that came into those roles five, seven, ten years ago is in product leadership roles and finance leadership roles, it's in operator roles, etc. But now that pipeline is dried up because, you know, as that title emerged, more and more people start copying it saying, oh, I'm just going to go hire a BizOps person while thinking through what they're really looking for. And BizOps became something between a glorified chief of staff and a project manager, right? So, okay, well, the work still needs to get done. We still need to figure out how to drive growth. Like, as a CRO, you need someone who's going to tell you what the data says, what your customer feedback is, and how to staff your sales team to go get that. And that's where RevOps comes in, right? You can, like, we took like with sales ops role, figured out that if we give them a broader mandate to own the entire customer journey, call it RevOps, we can drive change. Then we complemented that with go-to-market strategy roles, right? And the kind of what used to, what used to said in BizOps analysis and revenue strategy, revenue operations. But that role, again, is getting diluted now, right? Because you're getting RevOps people who are glorified Salesforce administrators. So where does the work migrate next? Now it's moving back to finance land. It's moving into strategic finance. I'm sure that title will get diluted again. In five years, there'll be something else if we're calling, where the, like something where the work needs to get done. I don't know what that is. And frankly, it doesn't really matter because the work that's driving value has not changed. It's just the job title that has changed. It's really funny. Whenever you put some strategic or strategy in front of something, it just becomes more appealing to consultants and ex-bankers. Yeah. Somehow they just... That no, just I mean, I'm guilty of the same that. thing, right? I'm guilty. It's a signal. It's a signal on your resume. It's a signal for your next job. But ultimately, that's not what actually helps you get the next job. It maybe gets you past the resume screen, but it's the impact that you drove is what gets you the job, what gets you through the interview process. Makes sense. Let's talk a little about, you know, you have, you have again, uh, I'm just piecing through the various LinkedIn posts that you have made. One of the ones was around product market fit. <laughs> and you shared the importance of identifying challenges and providing solutions in order to achieve product market fit. And there was, you know, the reference to sort of you being a product of, you know, Abacus and Pencil itself and kind of your experience. So what has been your experience so far in terms of being, you know, marketing the brand of Mika? And what are maybe some of the challenges or the triumphs that you have been able to have in finding that right product market fit? Yeah. 
a decision that I keep pushing off. I thought I was going to have to make it middle of this year when I first started. Then I said I'm going to make it in time for Q4. Now I'm saying I'm going to make it next year. But it's the decision I keep pushing off is whether Abacus and Pencil needs to be a one-man show or it's something where I want to go build out a team, right? And there's two ways to build out a team. We could go hire effect juniors, for lack of a better word, right? People who can own a model, or I can go and partner up with someone who is a peer but has a complementary skill set, right? HR, RevOps, etc. And I keep pushing that decision off because, you know, the trickle of customer feedback that I'm getting right now isn't necessarily forcing me into that decision just yet. And I think that's like, as a founder, like that's an important thing I learned about product market fit. It's about finding at the right pace, right? It's not about you need to go figure it out, figure out your ICP and just go, 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 go. Bombard it, market it, right? You know, like spend a ton of money on Google AdWords or LinkedIn ads or whatever it is you're trying to do. Because chances are the product market fit that I would have kind of like honed in on six months ago is very different from the product market fit I'm going to hone in six months from today. Now, my skill set is changing. My approach is changing. The client feedback is changing. And even within the same clients that I've been working with for during this time, like the way we partner up together has changed as we built more trust, as I got to know their business better, as I got to know their team better, right? And as their team has changed and kind of like I've stayed part, part of a constant. So that's been my personal journey. But then again, like I'm also not in a rush. I'm effectively bootstrapped, right? I'm cash flow positive from this. I'm not raising investor money. I'm not chasing a billion dollar valuation, right? Like this is for me, this is about having the kind of impact and like work-life balance that I'm looking for, not necessarily like going building something that I can sell in five to seven years. If that changes, yes, I probably would be in a little bit more of a rush, right? But I also would have a little bit more of a investor funded cash cushion to go figure it out. Makes sense. Let's talk a little about you know, you've been part of multiple different startups and you have now certainly worked with multiple different startups in this kind of new role that you have. What has been your experience with technology in finance departments and how that has evolved over your career? Yeah, Excel is the workforce, right? It always has been. It, it probably never goes away. But I've actually been an early adopter of Google Sheets. And I think for the last... Five years, every model that I've built has been in Google Sheets. And I love the collaboration capability of it, right? I love the ability to track changes, version control, and tag people and whatnot. Right now, there's some limitations, but for me, they've been worth it because I found that while maybe you can build a 30,000 row model in Google Sheets, because it'll just break, it is very rare that at the Series B, C stage, you actually need a 30,000 row model. If you're if you're pushing the capabilities of Google Sheets, you're probably solving for the wrong problem in the business, right? Or maybe it's sitting and maybe you just need to have a data scientist instead of, you know, an FBNA person or whatever. So I, li- I like technology. It absolutely helps, right? And I think the collaboration piece is critical when, when you think through business partnering. I've also found that technology helps wherever you have kind of like a recurring process that just needs to run correctly 99% of the time, right? Whether it's deal desk, contract approvals, accruals and whatnot, like you want to put the systems in place there, they're going to remove the pain. It's not so much about saving time or saving costs of replacing humans with software. It's about replacing human error with software predictability, right? Because when something is misaccrued or you have the wrong contract with maybe a provision that, you know, you're not supposed to have based on bank covenants or whatnot, like the cost of that is really, really high. But I think an emerging area where software is trying to find its fit is kind of like 
planning and company-wide visibility and KPI, like measuring KPIs, whether it's a dashboard or an FP&A planning tool. And that's where, where I think the product market fit hasn't been found yet, right? And part of it is because the market isn't there. Going back to kind of the mindset, it doesn't matter what great of a tool, a dashboard and KPI reporting, integrations, planning, whatever you give to somebody who has a cost center mindset. They're just not going to be able to produce the insight because like none of these tools, now maybe AI will change that, but as of today, none of these tools actually produce novel insights that help you grow the business. And if they did, well, everybody would have access to that and that can't be a competitive advantage anymore. So it's still about, you know, human creativity, humans connecting the dots, and that comes down to the kind of talent you bring in, the rest is just how you, you know, make that talent a little bit more efficient. Very cool. Let's get into a hypothetical. Let's assume I'm joining a Series B funded company as a CFO, yep. their first CFO. What would be your advice for me for my first 100 days in that company to be able to lay a great foundation for a long term future? Yeah, you want to do three things. The foundation link here is actually relationship oriented. I think, right? Because ultimately, like your success in the role is going to be based on not your ability to pass an audit, but based on your ability to go and build partnerships, is build a par- partnering with the rest of the company, right? One, you want to do something that just removes a very obvious pain point. Maybe it's simplifying invoicing, improving collections, whatever it is. It's often in the process, it's often kind of like a back office pain point that just people struggle with usually has huge repercussions 17 different people trying to figure it out like just take it over say hey i own this it's my problem solve it right you build a reputation for being someone who helps people right helps people actually like simplify their lives two create some kind of process so that people get used to you saying no not always of course but it's important to actually set some boundaries and clarify that you're here like not to follow instructions and just do accounting but to actually like figure out what are the decisions that need to be made Right? And whether it's saying no to, you know, the occasional expense approval or no to a hire, like doesn't matter. The point is like you need to show that you have authority to say no and that the CEO supports that. Right? And then three, uh, do something that actually creates long-term value between you and the founder. Right? Whether it's having a conversation about what the next fundraise looks like, building a different kind of relationship with the board updating the long-term financial model and using that to drive a pricing conversation for the next quarter or a hiring conversation for next year. Something that actually helps you get that kind of dialogue started. And ultimately, the decision itself that comes out of it doesn't matter as much as the fact that you guys are talking about it. Got it. Did you ever do anything to foster that relationship on a regular basis? Is it like a weekly lunch or a dinner or any kind of specific you know, meeting that is slotted for each week where, you know, yourself and the CEO has to come and then has to talk about those strategic matters or something else that you did to really foster on those things? I mean, of course, you should have a one-on-one, right, with your boss. Everybody should have a weekly one-on-one with their boss. And if you're not having one, that's a problem. How you approach the one-on-one between the CEO and the CFO can be an interesting conversation. The best CFOs I've seen often bring in a team member into that. Right. Maybe it's a different person every time, but they know that if founders see the strength of the talent they have on their team, that it actually builds credibility. Right. They give opportunity for their team to grow. So that, I think that's something that's important to do. That means you may need to have a longer one-on-one. Maybe you have an hour where the 
you know, the last 30 minutes are just the two of you and the first half hour, you have the option to bring somebody in. And that also kind of like creates a little bit of more of a, you know, breaks the echo chamber for like their word. It's, um, gives an opportunity for everybody to grow, get visibility, come with decisions, and ultimately, you know, helps the rest of your team, as, as the rest of your finance team, get visibility into how to think as an investor, how to think as a founder, as a leader. And that makes them more impactful on their roles today, let alone you know, grow their careers in the long run. And then, of course, uh, you should always align and realign, you know, as circumstances change, the company grows with the founder and what kind of relationship you want to have with the board. You know, it's a really, really great signal of trust when the founder is comfortable not being in the room or not being in the email thread when a board member reaches out to the CFO directly. Uh, it's a big, big piece of trust. It's important to not abuse it, to kind of not be mindful of what you say, to check with the founder, with your CEO, make sure you're 100% aligned because there cannot be any daylight between the two of you. Definitely not, not daylight that the board can see, but that's a relationship that you want to be able to still build on your own. Right, with the board. And you know, founders always come first. Boards, today's day and age, are super founder friendly. That's a good thing. But as a CFO, you also want to be in a position where the board member can call you and tell you, like, hey, I need you to go fix this. Right. Something that's important for long term trajectory of the company, but maybe not important enough to bother the founder with. Right. And ultimately, like that's how you also end up having more of a growth impact on the company instead of being cost center. Makes sense. I love the point around uh, visibility and credibility gives a lot of comfort to the CEO as well as the CFO at the same time. You mentioned investors. I want to talk about what are the qualities of, let's say, a Series B-funded company mm-hmm. that investors are looking for to fund further in Series C, Series D, and so on. Is there a set of characteristics that makes a lot of sense right now and perhaps are also hard to find? <laughs> I mean, it's simple to say it is efficient growth, right? You know, the metrics, the individual benchmarks that, in, that investors look for are going to be different based on when you're fundraising and whatnot. But like, ultimately, like at that stage, you want to show that you have product market fit. You want to show that you understand that, you know, a dollar invested into sales and marketing comes back with X dollars of revenue on Y time horizon. So that means being able to measure sales efficiency, your CAC, LTV, et cetera. But more importantly, also being able to explain why it's working and what would make it work better, faster, cheaper, etc. And then, of course, you know, vision, team, talent, those things continue to matter. Like, you know, you want to have a good pitch. You, you know, the days when you could go pitch with a 10 slide deck that said, we're going to go change the world and look, here's a graph that's up and to the right. And that's it. Like, that's gone, right? You want to have a little bit of a story behind that and actually explain how you're driving it back to your customers and why that kind of impact is sustainable. Maybe one thing to maybe even add to that, right? Like if, if you're actually like some practical advice, if we're going out of pitch today, my view is that you want to go out with a simple deck, right? That doesn't necessarily try to answer every possible question. Every investor is going to have a different set of questions they want to look for in diligence. Get to the market first, get to them first, Put the simple store in front of them and see if they bite. If they want to have a second meeting, they will come back to you with a whole bunch of extra questions. But the point is that you'll be able to answer them in context. Because oftentimes the way you want to answer question two may be very different from the way you want to position the same data to 
answer question seven, depending on what they're asking for. So you want to actually know the fullest question they're asking before trying to go build out like a single deck that addresses every possible scenario. So a simple deck that talks about your vision, your team, your metrics, your path to efficient growth, your like exit scenarios, like that's what you need. You don't you it's still ten to fifteen slides, right? I'm not saying you need to build go build a long deck, but it's one level deeper than what I think you would have shared in the past. Got it. Super cool. Let's talk a little about kind of your motivations, your energy. What keeps you going? Seeing my clients achieve customer out- outcomes for their customers. Right? It's same what kept me going in full-time roles, right? Like, it, except now I just get to do it three times more often because I have three sets of, you know, end customers of clients. We're pursuing these startups, we founders, you know, employees, consultants, whatever, because we believe that they're going to go and improve other people's lives, whether it's consumers directly or indirectly, like, or employees of other companies in the case of B2B, like, you're making somebody's life easier. You're producing a better outcome. You're producing impact. So uh, it all comes back down to that, right? Like the same way the macro economy runs on consumers, startups run based on improving outcomes for for the end customer. So for me, that's what keeps me going, right? It, it's really hard to go work with or for a company. It doesn't matter whether it's a full-time or a consulting role where you don't, where you think they're not doing the right thing, where you think they're, you know, whether the intermediary rent collector, for lack of a better word, right? Like, or they're, you know, preying on risk. One of my clients is in healthcare, right? And they're changing the way that, like, hospitals get staffed and ultimately produce better patient outcomes. But there are also a lot of companies in healthcare that specialize in exploiting the system. So, you know, it's not even about the industry. It's about the business model you want to actually go after. And it's important to believe in the kinds of outcomes you're driving and understand that, you know, Profitable growth also means being able to scale and have touch more end customers and you know end consumers, and that's motivating enough for me at least. Super. I hope nowadays in this kind of consulting role, there aren't very many shit hit the fan kind of moments. But I'm sure when you were an operator, those used to happen more often. How did you keep your calm back then, at least? Yeah. Shit hits the fan. Doesn't matter what role you're in. <laughs> you know, when you're when you're an outside party, often you're also overflow capacity, right? You're like, oh shit, we're have this meeting tomorrow, and I just need a quick sanity check to make sure, like, last minute, I just got the deck done. Can you make sure this investor pitch makes sense, right? So that still happens, right? You you want to be available. I think it at the end of the day, like it, it's a question of we've been there, we've been through this before. We're gonna get to the other side, you know, knowing that. There will always be another side and the world is not blowing up. Like, and focus on what you can action and don't worry about the things that you can't action. All right. Last question before we move into the lightning round. Sure. What would be your advice for emerging professionals who want to climb up the ladder of finance and become sort of leaders in finance, CFOs, etc.? I have a very conflicted relationship with remote work. I'm a personal fan of it for myself. <laughs> I like being able to work at my house. And, you know, I've gotten to the point in my career where you know, I'm able to go and maintain relationships with a relatively light and frequent touch. I think early on in my career, remote work would have actually hindered me. And I think it has a risk of hindering people early in their careers today as well, right? It, if I was managing junior team right now, it'd be really hard for me to mentor them if, unless I was sitting right next to them. Because a lot of this happens and 
hallway conversations, real-time feedback as you walk out of the meeting, looking over somebody's shoulder and noticing they've spent like the last 20 minutes in the same Excel spreadsheet and being like, hey, you can automate that with a formula, right? And like the simple things like that ultimately matter is when you're early in your career. So I think if you are just starting out in a career in your first like in a couple of years, you're even a couple of years out of business school, I'd say, think long and hard about your attitude to remote work, right? There is a trade-off. There is a cost. Now, there are huge benefits to it as well. You know, not having the distraction of people coming and tapping your shoulder uh, is the flip side of people coming and tapping your shoulder and saying, you can write that formula a little bit better. I just saw it over your shoulder. <laughs> Make that call, figure out what's right for you and be open to changing that. All right. That brings us to our lightning round. So basically, I'm going to ask you quick questions on all I need is immediate responses. Shouldn't be too tough. Uh, well, let's see. <laughs> all right. Sweet or savory? Savory. Okay. Books or podcasts? Books. Thinker or doer? Clearly thinker, <laughs> based on how long it's taken me to answer this. LinkedIn or Twitter? LinkedIn. Scotch or whiskey? Whiskey. Introvert or extrovert? Introvert. Mountains or beaches? Beaches. Growth or profitability? Growth. What is your one hidden talent? Connecting the dots? I don't know. OK. <laughs> I just uh, think I do... hard about what, what would be hidden about it. <laughs> Any anything that uh, I don't know, painting, art, poetry, singing. No, I try to be dancing. Smart of what I can do. <laughs> yeah, and I'm pretty bad at all those things. Yeah. Now you make all me right. boring. Ideal place to retire. Small village in the south of France. Okay. Number one item on your bucket list right now. Go to Antarctica. Well, uh, who is your role model, personally or professionally? Don't have one. It's always a composite. One thing that can make you 10 times more productive? Sleep. Okay. And the last one, describe yourself in three words. Curious, opinionated, less affair. All right. Well, Mika, that brings us to the end of the show. But this has been an amazing time talking to you and parsing out so many of your different LinkedIn posts and thought processes. Thank you so much for being with us here and giving us your time and all of this great advice. Thank you, Rohit. It's been great to be here and really enjoy the conversation as well. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you'll find at least one nugget that is beneficial to you. As always, thanks for listening to Strategy of Finance. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us on Apple or Google Podcasts. Your comments will make us better. And be sure to tune in next week for another engaging conversation. Until then, this is Rohit Agarwal, and remember to learn, grow, and inspire.